Greetings! Welcome aboard the Diecast Enterprise. This is Pags. I'm Foley. And today we have a special treat for you because today is Lonely Among Us. Episode 7 from Season 1. Yeah, it's a blockbuster of an episode, let me tell you. It's non-stop excitement from start to finish. Foley was on the edge of his seat. Until I fell asleep. And slept through the majority of the episode. It's only maybe like 50%. Even jets from my uh, air duster were incapable of rousing Foley from his deep slumber, except to tell me not to do that anymore. It was annoying, all right? I was trying to get some rest. Come on, we're podcasting, man. This is serious business. Sorry. It's all right. Well, this episode is remarkable for no other reason than this is the one and only appearance of both the Soleil and... The Antikins. Antikins, most noted for being action figures available in the Galoob line of uh, toys yes, from the, the first fine season. the Galoob action figure line. Most of you are probably familiar with the Star Trek the next generation toys that were produced by Playmates in the 90s. Maybe. Probably. Mm. I know I was. But before that line, back in, I guess, 87, 88, yeah. Galoob had the license for Star Trek the Next Generation. And they created a line of toys which I love. I absolutely adore the Galoob Star Trek line, and it saddens me deeply that it didn't last. They're pretty crappy. You shut your mouth. No, but they did produce the actual namesake of this podcast. The Diecast Enterprise. With separated Sautra section. The best Star Trek toy ever made. No doubt. 100% for sure. And yes, uh, as you mentioned, the Soleil and the Antikins were both available in that line. Because when they created the line, they had to do so before the series had started to air. So they had relatively little information to go on. The only aliens that they knew about were Q, the Soleil, the Antikins, and the Ferengi. And that was it. That's all they had, because that's in, like, the first six, seven episodes of season one. See, these episodes, I guess, would have been already produced. They would have already had these ones finished and before yeah, they, they, they were uh, Farpoint pretty, aired. They had filmed the first half of the season by the time the Galoob people were given their uh, go-ahead. Well, I gotta give it to them, like, these are pretty cool-looking aliens by season one standards. Yeah, Star Trek yeah. Standards, the, the Soleil are basically Cobra people. Yeah. Um, not unlike that old public service announcement about not doing drugs and that drug dealer who's trying to get you to do drugs and he's walking with you, chatting you up and every time something passes between you he becomes more and more snake-like Yeah. until finally like at the end of the commercial he finally basically steps into the light and looks into the camera. He's saying like would I lie to you? Yes! He hisses like a snake. He looks like a snake. Exactly. I think his name is Snake. And Very much like that. And the Antikins are basically badgers. Yeah, they kind of look like, I don't know, like, like Ron Perlman with long hair? Maybe Can- they're, you know what, maybe they're mongooses. Yeah, maybe. Cause... That makes sense, because they are deadly enemies with the Soleil. Yeah, these are two species from the same system, we learn right away, and yeah. they're going to some sort of diplomatic conference. On a planet called Parliament. Yes. So the Enterprise has been charged with picking the delegates from both planets up and taking them to this conference. And they hate each other. The Soleil, even when they transport onto the ship, first thing they say is, they know right away that the Antikins have been picked up it. first, because they can smell them. They're very upset that the uh, Antikins were brought aboard first, and then the sleeping arrangements aren't acceptable because they're on the same deck. Like, they're 100 meters away from each other, so Riker ends up having to put the Soleil on a completely different deck from the Antikins, and they also request... Do you think he actually did that, or did he just say he was going to Uh, no, he did it because it's mentioned later in the episode that the Soleil are on the Antikins' deck, or vice versa. okay. The Soleil also requests that they be housed upwind from the Soleil, or, or from the Antikins. Somebody rolled their eyes at that one. Yeah. Riker's like, of course!
course. I'll get right on that. Stay up window this <laughs> as he walks out of the room. So anyway, they're kind of distinctive looking mm-hmm. species. So I guess that's why they made action figures of them, even though this is the only episode they ever yeah, appear in. That's the thing about the action figures is they had to take a guess at what was going to be popular, not knowing what was going to happen with the series. So yeah. for instance, they didn't have a lot of aliens, but in terms of play value, they needed aliens to either fight or discover or however the kids are going to play with their Star Trek figures. So they didn't have an ad with kids reenacting the awkward diplomacy of Riker trying to mollify the Soleil? <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if these had actual ads. Do you remember seeing television no. commercials for the Galoob line? I don't. I don't at all. I don't even remember how I became aware of them as yeah, a child. Yeah, I think I came across them at uh, Toys and Wheels. I don't know. We can check out YouTube maybe to yeah, see. Yeah, we stuff. should. Uh, we'll get back to you on this one. We'll be back with more on the Galoob connection later. One of the interesting things about the Galoob line is they overpacked Riker. What does that mean for a non-toy head? When toys are shipped to their stores, you know, like Walmart or Toys R Us or whatnot, they come in cases. Yes. And each case has an assortment of the action figures in the line. And when an action figure is overpacked, it means that they have more of that action figure than any of the others. So instead of like an equal dispersal of all of the figures, you know, like two Rikers, two Picards, two of everything, it'll be like three Picards and then like ten Rikers. So for every case, you'll get maybe four times more of one figure than of any of the others. And so, so this were Transformers and it were Optimus Prime, that might make sense? Yeah. But yes. when it's TNG action figures and it's Riker? Well, they had to guess. They said, which character are the kids going to want to play as? Are they going to want to play as the old bald guy? Probably not. Are they going to want to play as Jordy LaForge? Maybe, you know, if they're reading no. Rainbow fans. But Jordy, he doesn't have a big action role in the show. And, sure. and then Data? Well, yeah. that was a toss-up because they didn't know whether Data was going to be popular or not. Right. Data was just like the android, the humorless robot. They didn't know that Data was going to be wildly popular. I'm retroactively shaking my head at these Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. It would be yeah. easy to imagine that Data would not be popular before the series came out, considering that the description they would have got about Data would be that he was basically the Vulcan of this series. What about the Wesley Crusher action figure, Joe? Well, they didn't make a Wesley Crusher action figure. Why on earth not? Because they only had like a limited line, right? So they, they made, made the highest priority figures. Yeah, they made full-on officers. The so they went with Riker and they figured that Riker was going to be their kid avatar, the character that the kids were going to gravitate towards mm. because he was the correct aged white male of the group. <laughs> what a misstep. Yes, definitely. I'm sure I've told you the great story of Jonathan Frakes, his first Star Trek convention. He was out on the market floor where everyone's selling their wares and he went to one of the toy vendors and the deal was any purchase get a Riker free. Yes. Free Riker with every purchase. With a hand-carved bust of Troy, for example? <laughs> get a free Riker action figure? Well, it's because there were too many Riker figures that they just couldn't yeah. get rid of them. The market was just flooded. Hence why I just received in the mail my oh, yes. oh-so-cool bearded Riker. See, right after the Galoob line had crashed and burned... The bottom had fallen out of the Riker action figure market. <laughs> yes. Oh, there was a... I can't remember the name of the uh, place, but they were trying to get rid of their uh, Star Trek stock. Mm-hmm. And the way they were doing it was, if you bought a complete set... They were putting together complete sets of every single figure in the line. Okay. If you bought that complete set, they would include a bearded Riker figure. And what they were doing, they would open up a Riker figure, and they would draw a beard on the action figure with a marker. And nice. then see 
seal it back up and send it out to you. So this wasn't an official release from Galoob. Galoob never released an official Bearded Riker because they didn't make it to the Season Mm 2. But this one place did that, and I have got one of them now. He's mint on unpunched card. Were you able to obtain the even rarer Hitler Mustache Picard? No, no, I, I did not obtain Hitler Mustache Picard. Maybe that's not a real thing. I have, however, got a starting lineup Hitler Mustache Michael Jordan. Oh, from his uh, Hanes underwear commercials where he had a Hitler mustache. Nice, nice. I don't know what possessed Michael Jordan to have a Hitler mustache. You would think that his PR people or his handlers would be like, Michael, maybe don't. I think after Space Jam, he just did whatever he wanted. Yeah, he could write his own ticket after Space Jam, as one would expect with Space Jam being the colossal hit that it was. The Citizen Kane of our age. Uh, it's one of the most influential movies out there. It's why its website is still up and running. Do you know how many like, players there are currently in the NBA that cite as the reason they got into basketball that Space they watched Jam? Space Jam as little kids. How many? Many, many. Lots of the international players talk about this. This is the first thing they know about. Are you fucking with me? No, I'm serious. Really? Yeah. That's really funny. So, anyway. So here we are, talking about Space Jam on a Star Trek podcast. What, were, what was this <laughs> podcast about again? You lucky people. Yeah, so the reason I guess we went on that big of a tangent, I suppose, is because this episode is really good. It's frightfully boring. Basically, while they're kind of speeding away from the Soleil planet... On their way to Parliament. They encounter a space cloud. Which they say it's traveling at war, but then all of the images we get of the Enterprise interacting with the cloud, they're clearly not traveling at war. They're on a budget. The basics of it is that this cloud is inhabited by uh, beings of pure energy, and one of them gets caught up in the Enterprise circuitry, initially interacting with and knocking out Worf and cohabitating with him until it transfers itself into Dr. Crusher and then eventually transferring itself into the ship's computer where it wanders around for a bit, kills an engineer. Kills an engineer? I'm sorry, it kills Chief Engineer Singh. Yeah, the guy that you were lauding in our Farpoint episode. We were talking about how in season one they have the rotation of engineers. There's several Chief Engineers. There's Chief Engineer Argyle, Chief Engineer McDougal. McDougal, yeah. and Chief Engineer Singh. And this is his one and only appearance yeah, because Engineer, he dies. Yeah, <laughs> Chief Engineer Singh gets himself killed. But eventually, this energy being makes its way into Picard, where it's very happy to be because Picard's the man in charge. And Picard, now influenced and con- basically controlled by this energy being, turns the ship around and heads them back to that cloud, and then beams himself into the cloud so that he will be able to travel the universe as pure energy, because being pure energy and not having any mass, he will no longer be bound by a velocity and whatnot. He'll be able right. to travel the universe at any velocity. Understandably, the rest of the crew are somewhat bummed yeah. by this happening. They're not on board with this. They try to... They try to stop him from... They try to relieve him of command, but he's got super electricity powers now. Yeah, so he zaps them with blue lightning, yeah. as seen in Which is every rad. trailer for the show. It's next the real... time on Star Trek, the next generation, yeah. Captain Picard hits people with lightning! Oh, shit. It's quite something. But yeah, he beams himself out into space. I think there was an original series episode like that, too. Isn't there one where Captain... Blue Lightning? No, where Captain Kirk is out in space in a space suit, and he's energy as opposed to matter. Oh. And they have to try to beam him back aboard. Oh, I sort of know what you're talking about. And their playmates made a special edition figure of him in that space suit. Really? I'm pretty sure. There's an old episode on the original series with Blue Lightning. What it is, I think, Spock is trying to convince Kirk to change allegiances to evil? And McCoy gets mad at them and shoots them with lightning. This all takes place on the Death Star? Oh, wait. No, I'm thinking of something else. Yeah. Never mind. Forget that. (laughs) 
Yeah, so basically, Picard beams himself into this cloud, but then shit goes wrong. Well, it's they, an energy being. Yeah. The idea is, I guess, that the energy being that lives and in, inhabits yeah. this cloud, they're also explorers. This energy being thought beaming out with Picard that they would merge and become a single entity. But apparently, they were incompatible, you know, like they're AC and DC. Yeah. So Picard's uh, energy pattern is left alone in the cloud and like... But it's still somehow in the ship, too? So he's well, able to... Well, no, they fly the ship into the cloud so that Picard can get back in. Oh, that's what it ha- Okay. Yeah, okay. you were dozing. Right. Uh, so Picard gets into the ship, and uh, then he gets into the con panel where he creates a letter P on the con panel so that they know he's there, and Troy is all like, oh, I sent something. Something is here. <laughs> really? Did you read the panel? And then our boy Data's like, oh, shit, y'all, I know what we should do. Let's go down to the transporter room. So they go down there, and he's like, I hope the captain remembers that his pattern would be in this transporter room's buffer because he was the last person to beam out from there and okay. Riker's like I wish there was some way we could know he was here we'll just have to risk it and I'm like but you know Counselor Troy's right there why not just turn your head half an inch and say Deanna do you sense anything here is there sense that's targeted though well I mean she was able to sense that something was there on the bridge but was she just trying to look like she was helping when everybody else noticed that the panel said P so she's well, that was before up. the panel had P oh well, okay and then Sorry, you know Troy. I mean if he can make a P appear on the panel on the con why can he not make a P appear on the panel? So he's basically haunting the ship. Yeah, basically. And then they beam him aboard. Or... Did they beam him out of the... No, I think his energy pattern is now, like, he has gone into the pattern buffer okay. of the transporter, so they just initiate the reconstitution sequence, as it were, and his energy now in the pattern buffer is reconstituted into Picard, who now, for reasons I can't figure out, has no memory of any of this. He was cognizant enough to travel through the circuitry of the ship, because I'm sure a human would know how to do that. So he just immediately forgets everything that happened up to that point. Yeah. Could it be back to our discussion the last time about mm-hmm. how transporters work? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying his pattern was in the buffer already. Yeah. Couldn't they have just... When it got reconstituted as that pattern, that pattern had no memories from after it was beamed out. So he's lost everything that happened in between because yeah, he didn't so, experience it? Yeah. Beaming. What a... Beaming's weird. I, I don't know. I'm... The ethics of beaming are something to think about. But we don't have much time to think about it because then Tasha Yar comes in to let us know that the Antikins have apparently killed one of the Soleil and have asked the ship's cook to cook it for them. Nice. Like you said, their mongooses killed the cobra. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, Picard's like, you know what? Maybe I will swing by uh, sick bay. I could use a rest. Riker, shit's in your hands now. Yeah. And Riker's like, oh, man. We you deal get- with this, Mr. Most Popular Action Figure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then we get our womp, 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 womp smirk from Deanna Troy, and the episode is over. And the ship flies away from the cloud. Zoom. Off to Parliament to deliver fewer delegates than they left with. The only thing that's worth mentioning probably is this is the first episode where Data plays around with the notion of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, indeed. In Picard's ready room, they're discussing all the weird system failures that have been happening, which are actually caused by this energy being traveling around the ship trying to figure out where the hell it is. And he brings up detectives and whatnot, and Sherlock Holmes comes up in conversation, and Mm -hmm. Data just latches right onto this to the point that in another scene, he is smoking a pipe, like a big, what is it, right. calabash? Is that uh, what they're called? Sure. And it's highly ridiculous. Does uh, he replicate that pipe? I imagine so. Is there something burning in it? It is expelling smoke. Doesn't the ship have smoke detectors? Isn't I, that against the rules? I don't 
don't know what it's expelling specifically. Data is definitely smoking it, but also Data doesn't have lungs in the same way we do. Maybe it's one of those E-pipes. Yeah, maybe. It's just maybe. water vapor. Exactly, but uh, I know that Tasha Yar is like waving her hand in front yeah, of her like, waist. Yeah, it smells like a to air freshener. Setting the scene for uh, future endeavors, especially in season two, we're going to have the Moriarty episode. I love the Data Sherlock Holmes episodes. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. They kind of go hand in hand, I think, with the Picard Dixon Hill episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Picard's got his preferred private investigator, and Data has his. Mm-hmm. And initially, at first, when we were watching, I thought that that's what they were setting up. I thought they were setting up Dixon Hill, and then turned out to be that they were setting up Sherlock Holmes. This episode is not very memorable. No, it's really not, except for the aliens, the which aliens are interesting. Cool. And, yeah. you know, mention of the fact that uh, we humans don't eat meat anymore. We eat oh, replicated yeah. meat, so we don't enslave animals for our food anymore, and the, the Antikins find that duly barbaric and disgusting because they eat their meat and kill it themselves, as it happens. Right. It's interesting that the Soleil and the Antikins are both petitioning for entrance into the Federation. Tasha Yar says it herself that neither race seems like a very good candidate for Federation entrance. Number one criteria being you have to eat replicated meat, do you think? Uh, no, but I expect that one of the criteria high up on the list is that you don't commit murder anymore. Maybe, yeah. That you aren't actively trying to murder another race. I'm not sure. Like, I don't really know the ins and outs of Federation politics, but this kind of feeds into something that I've been thinking about since the last time we talked about the Prime Directive and whether or not uh, it can be considered... I thought you wanted to get into whether or not if you replicated meat that was entirely human nature, but it's artificially replicated, would that still be considered cannibalism? Listen, we'll table that one. We have talked enough about replicators. We'll save that for later. But no, like I was thinking about how the Prime Directive says you can't interfere, and uh, like in particular that episode a little while back where Tasha Yar got kidnapped and how I didn't think that the uh, Prime Directive really applied there. And it occurred to me after talking about it that there has to be a certain level of personal responsibility on the part of that planet. They are aware of the Federation. They are aware of how the Federation works and what Federation laws are. Right. So if they break Federation law in their interactions with the Federation, then I don't think that they can necessarily claim protection under the Prime Directive anymore. I think it's got to be a sliding scale for uh, interaction. There's clearly a difference between a species that isn't aware of the existence of other yeah, species like I, I or would say that, warp travel or anything yeah, like I that. I would say the Prime Directive very definitely applies to planets that haven't made first contact yet with any extraterrestrial species. Well, I think then the guidelines are much probably much more clear yeah. as to what to do, but I, if you're talking about like how diplomacy should be conducted with other spacefaring races that mm-hmm. are not members of the Federation, that's a trickier one. Yeah, they commit what is essentially an act of war by kidnapping a member of a visiting delegation, and while the Federation may refrain from actually going to war with them, I have trouble imagining that the Prime Directive would prevent the Federation from simply taking back their... Are you saying it's a Federation diplomat, or is the Federation a third party in this? The Enterprise is the representative of the Federation in this. Okay. So they are, for all intents and purposes, the Federation. So when a member of the Enterprise crew is taken forcibly, then... Well, okay, okay. Like So in this episode, the Enterprise is transporting two delegates to another planet, and one of the delegates ends up murdering somebody on the other part. 
party. Yeah. The way they respond to that is probably different than it would be if one of the parties had murdered a member of the crew. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is aboard the ship, presumably these delegates are bound by Federation law because that's where they are. They are in the Federation now. So if one delegate kills another... Well, do you think they have such a concept as diplomatic immunity? I mean, that's a good call. I don't know. Potentially. That's a rough one. Probably why they don't like these uh, diplomatic missions. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that there's just a planet for diplomacy. The diplomacy planet. It's a good idea. It is. Granted, every time they said they were going to Parliament, all I could think about was the funk band. Is it George Clinton? I believe he was involved, yeah. Yes. We're off to Parliament, and all I'm hearing in my head is, like, funky bass. It's not a bad thing. Uh, So, padding. We gotta pad this podcast out. All right. Because there just isn't a... The review is a little lean. Um, Yeah, you know. Then again, the episode, there's not a lot to talk about. Yeah, this is another DC Fontana, and I know she was like the head writer for Next Gen uh, in season one, but uh, I can honestly say I'm not a huge DC Fontana fan. I mean, I don't know how they did the episode writing. Like, would it have been just one person? or Generally speaking, I'm pretty sure that the way Star Trek worked was the scripts were written by one or two people. Other than Brandon Braga, I couldn't tell you who was involved yeah. in any episodes. It's interesting that Next Gen had an open script policy. Anyone could send a script to Star Trek. It's, it's kind of cool that anyone could write a Star Trek script and send it in. In fact, when I was a kid, I knew at least one guy who was writing a Star Trek script to send in. My friend Richard, who worked at a local video store at the time and was kind enough to let me come in and quote-unquote work on Sundays working basically involved. This was a Crazy Mike's video. Oh yeah. The one that we were by today that has now closed down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I would go in on Sundays and I would basically put videos away. All I really cared about was getting to hang out with my cool friend Richard, who I guess he was like in his early 20s. <laughs> yeah. My payment for this was that I would get a free rental. Uh, anyways, he was writing a script for Star Trek and I remember being so inspired by this idea that I immediately went home and started writing my own script for Next Gen. When I started writing, this would have been 89. I didn't know you wrote a script. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I never finished it because I was 10. Yeah. But I was so inspired by the fact that my friend Richard was writing a script that I went ahead and wrote one. My script idea was post-Q-Who, but pre-Best of Both Worlds. Okay. So... It involved the Borg. It involved the Borg. And I came up with what I still feel to this day as an almost 35-year-old man. Yes. I still feel that my 10-year-old self came up with a really unique way to engage the Borg. Yes. The Genesis device. Oh, yes. Okay. You beam the Genesis device aboard a Borg ship, and when it goes off, it destroys that Borg ship. You know, it kind of condenses into, if there's not enough matter there for it to create a planet or a moon, it'll just be debris or whatever, and it okay. eventually fall apart. Does uh, it turn them into humans? Uh, no, it doesn't turn them into anything. It uh, obliterates them. All right. So my notion was that, obviously, if the Borg invade the Federation, they're going to do so in an armada. They aren't just just going to send one ship, which apparently I was wrong. They only send one ship. It's way more badass than they just send one ship. Yeah. I assumed that there would be multiple Borg cubes, so if you detonate the Genesis device amongst those cubes, they all get destroyed, coalesce into, like, a planetoid, which then rips itself apart in a a month or so. (laughs) Yeah. Ta-da! Take that, Borg. Can't really defend against that. They don't get a chance to adapt to the Genesis device, because it wipes them out. It's not like a 
phaser where one of them gets shot and then the next one is like, oh, okay, I have shields now. I'm trying to remember what the Genesis device was supposed to do. Is it supposed to, like, create life where there wasn't life? The way the Genesis device works Can explain is... explain how it works? They Star Trek explain how it works. I don't really understand why it would destroy the Borg, though. Because, as Spock informs us in Wrath of Khan, when McCoy asks him the very question, what if this device was used where life already exists, Spock says it would destroy such life in favor of its new matrix. Mm. That's why they're looking for a lifeless planetoid on which to use the Genesis device and why Carol Marcus is all like there can't be mm. so much as a microbe because it will obliterate that life in favor of its new matrix. So wouldn't it just use all the genetic material of the Borg to create? No, it, it would basically, we're getting into matter replication here again, you know, basically <laughs> it's going to convert that biological matter into energy and then reconvert that energy into its new pre-programmed matrix. That seems like another Star Trek plot dead end because they never reused it yeah. for anything else. And they had other ideas. They had other plans. And we'll get to the Borg in due course. I have a lot to say about the Borg. So, more padding. Let's talk about starships. You want to talk about the aesthetics of starships. Yeah, in starship design. And, you know, it's a good time to do it because we're partway through season one of Next Gen now. So we've had some time to get familiar with the brand new Galaxy-class starship, mm -hmm. the Enterprise NCC-1701D. But it is not the first Enterprise, and it won't be the last <laughs> Enterprise. So true. let's talk about Enterprises. All enterprises. Right. Well, I think... Uh, we both agree that this one is the coolest looking. Yeah, I certainly feel that the Enterprise D is probably the best starship design that I've seen. For me personally, for my aesthetic tastes, I find the Enterprise D the most appealing of all of the uh, Enterprise designs. But it's still inspired by the original. Absolutely. You can see that inspiration, you know, like the saucer section, the way the warp nacelles are, the body of the Enterprise, but it is definitely not the original. The very first Enterprise, the NCC-170, one as it appeared in the original series for me that design is very uh, I don't dislike the design but certainly the model making techniques of the day the Enterprise looks kind of cheap and that's because it was built in the 60s and I am used to a different aesthetic having you like it more sleek it's not about the sleek per se but one of the things that I find appealing about say the refit of the Enterprise for the motion pictures is that you can see the panels like the different pieces of metal that make up the surface of the ship it has that kind of weird sheen where you know different panels have different reflective indexes as it were so uh, you can kind of see the different sheets of metal that make up the surface of the saucer section or the drive section for instance in the modeling community they refer to that as the Aztec pattern hmm, I didn't know that but you know what I'm talking about right that look that it's not all just one single piece of metal that it's created by plates sure yeah and I like that it adds a level of realism that for me was missing in the original studio model from the television enterprise well I mean that's just what the aesthetics were in the 22 60s. I'm just saying that in terms of aesthetics, I prefer the look of the refit for multiple reasons. Like, I like the nacelles on the refit a lot better. I find the original series, the lights at the end of the nacelles are rather goofy looking. Again, it is. It's a cheap 60s model. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's not going to look as sophisticated as something from later. That's why I say I have nothing against the original Enterprise, but in terms of aesthetic value, it is my least favorite version of the Enterprise, specifically because it doesn't look like a space 
ship as much as it looks like a cheap model. All right, okay. The Federation kind of has a look and feel for its ships in the TNG era and the movie era. Yeah, there's a very distinct look to the TNG era ships. All other ships are the same color? Kind of same color scheme? They all have that same rounded, smooth design to them, which is largely due to the designer of the ships, because he designed them all. It was a very uniform thing, and I can't remember his name right now. It seems reasonable for an organization like Starfleet to have a sort of consistent look for all their spacecraft. The Romulans do that too, with all of their ships are green. Mm -hmm. Do they paint them? Like, how do they get them to be green like that? I don't know. Maybe they treat the metal. So, the original series Enterprise, yeah, it's... I like the basics of the design, but like I say, it looks like a cheap model. The Enterprise as it appears after the refit, which occurred in the motionless picture, and lasts through until Star Trek III when the Enterprise meets its demise. I love that version of the Enterprise. I find the motion picture Enterprise redesign very cool looking. The A looks the same too. We can just call it the motion picture Enterprise, and that's fine. From a design standpoint, I mean, they have to illustrate that a bunch of time has passed between the era of the movies and the era (laughs) of the Enterprise D. But would you like it if there were still movie era ship designs flying around in the TNG universe? I wouldn't mind. It does happen from time to time. Remember when Kelsey Grammer's ship... Yeah, that, comes... one, came, that one came through a time... Yeah, time rift. But that's the thing, though, is we get to see the two design aesthetics side by side and they don't look out of place with each other. Yeah. He's flying... I don't know what class of vessel it is. It's the same one as the Reliant. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that they used the Reliant model. It's a Fraser class. Yeah. The thing about the movie version and the next-gen version is they feel like they belong in the same universe. Sure. And I totally buy that the movie versions are precursor to the next-gen versions. Why do you think they got into saucers? Real-world explanation or... No, no. Oh, Trek explanation. Trek explanation? I, I have no idea at no. all. Don't know. The real-world explanation is obviously that when North American audiences thought about spaceships, the first thing they thought about was flying saucers, and the next thing they thought about was rockets. So so they just flying saucer with rockets on it. That's exactly what they did. What do you think about like the alternate timeline Enterprise Ds? Oh, like the yeah. end of uh, the one with the extra nacelle. What did that yeah. extra nacelle do? Made it rad. I love <laughs> that Enterprise. I just wanted something to look cooler. I love the phaser cannon that lines the bottom of the saucer section. Yep. I love everything about future Enterprise D <laughs> from All Good Things. It's more badass. It is so badass. Badass, and especially by comparison to what we get in the fucking next-gen movies. Oh, the Enterprise E? The direction that the TNG era designs begin to take in, like, the Voyager years and then oh, into so the uh, movies, they start to get this more arrowhead shape. I hate that. Someone I, didn't like the saucers, I guess. Yeah, uh, clearly whoever started designing those had decided that we had had enough saucers for yeah. one franchise and that it was time to move on to Everything something Needs to look like a guitar pick. Some people really like it. Really? Yeah. Who? I don't know. But, you know, I mean, I can't blame people for their aesthetic. I hadn't thought about that. There are people out there that probably like the Voyager the best. Yeah, I have. Not the uh, show, but the ship. I know people that like Voyager, too. You know, I mean, it's not for me. What's your favorite non Enterprise ship in the Star Trek universe? It's hard to pick just one, but um, well, I will. Me, yeah, do it. It is definitely the Romulan Warbird. The TNG-era Warbird? Or oh, yeah, the yeah. The TNG-era Warbird. 
Shepard yeah, that you. dwarfs the Enterprise, and it looks freaking badass. Like, I love the wings. I love the head of the ship. Open design feel, Every, all that empty space. Everything about it screams kick-ass to me. The Romulan Warbird looks dangerous. And also, remember when Shreddies had those little uh, toys? The Romulan Warbird was the best one. Well, yeah. aside from the Ferengi one, because you could flick that. The Ferengi one was great. The Ferengi one flew like a motherfucker. Other ships... What's, what's your least favorite? Oh, my least favorite. Hmm. You can't say Voyager. No, I'm not going to say Voyager because as much as I, I'm i not a big fan of the Arrowhead design, I don't hate the Voyager as a it. ship. It's not my favorite, but I don't consider it obscenely ugly. I consider mm. the Enterprise E obscenely ugly. Yeah, the E is really I bad. I think the Enterprise E is definitely my least favorite starship design in Star Trek. Yeah, you know, the other one that I really hate is uh, the Borg sphere. Everything that happened to the Borg in First Contact <laughs> yeah. was terrible. Right. First Contact well and truly destroyed the Borg. And they potentially could have saved it. They could have pulled the Borg out of the fire. But then Voyager carried on with this whole nonsense uh, with the Borg Queen. And the Borg Queen is easily the very worst thing that has ever been inflicted upon the Borg. What did you think of the redesign of the Enterprise for the uh, new Trek movies? I like it fine. I'm sort of an updated take on the the look of the original series mm-hmm. ship. I liked it better once I saw the movie than I did before the movie. Before the movie, when I just saw still shots of the Enterprise, when they finally released photos of them online, I was like, oh, I don't like that at all. But uh, seeing it in action in the film... Yeah, it's perfectly serviceable. It, it's, yeah. The look of it didn't take me out of the movie at all, where no. I was thinking, oh, this doesn't look like what the Enterprise is supposed to look like. I didn't even think about that. It just like it just looks. I really like liked the, the bridge of the new Enterprise. I like liked... the lens flares. No, let's not get into the lens flares. You like the very very white bridge. The color of the bridge doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. What I liked about the bridge was that the view screen wasn't a screen, per se. It was a window. Hmm. Okay. I like that it's a window, because a window seems, like, really fucking useful. Like a touchscreen? No, like a window that doesn't stop working when the electronics go out. Or, like, when you're in a nebula chasing Khan. Alright, you're talking about the view screen. Yes, I'm talking about the view screen. Alright, okay. I'm sorry, was I not clear? No. Um, The view screen is a window. Okay, yeah. And, you know, it has, like, heads-up display and stuff projected over it you know and on it but it's a window so they're on the bridge and they're looking out into space right in front of them Mm -hmm. which i think is a really good idea because like remember in wrath of khan you know when they're like in that nebula and neither of them can see each other well the problem with a window is that it's all well and dandy until you point your spaceship at the star Mm -hmm. then everybody's blinded you have to have a way to dim that which is fine again like you say when all the electronics everything are working but then if there's ever a power failure everyone's just blinded they have to have a way to kind of tune that out. I'm sure they probably do. Like old school Battlestar Galactica, they had a window that had a shield, basically, like an actual physical shield that would slide into place to protect them from whatever. Huh. You know, it seems to me that a window is a, a very useful thing to have. Right. I, I mean, you want to be able to see what's out there for sure. Yeah. It's got to be made of pretty stern stuff, is the thing. Well, I mean, it's transparent aluminum. Yeah, maybe. All of that's the windows in Trek are transparent aluminum. That's good enough for whales. Uh, uh, until for until generations when they crash and suddenly it's all glass. 
Well, this has gone on for... We just rambled for 40 minutes. Yeah, we padded this out so much that this episode is now technically longer than our Encounter at Farpoint episode. Yeah. We'll see how much I edit down. Have fun editing. Okay, well, join us next time when we'll uh, talk about another episode of Star Trek that's 25 years old. Justice. This is the one where they almost kill Wesley Crusher for stepping on flowers. Yep. Tune in next time for Sex Planet. We'll see you then. Thank you.